Take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews, chapter three, as we continue in our series, Living with Confidence in Christ. And today we find ourselves in the third chapter of Hebrews. It says in your bulletin that next Sunday, you know, start into chapter four to read ahead, but I don't know what I was thinking when I told them to print that, because next Sunday you get to hear Courtney Richards, one of our missionaries from Jamaica is gonna be here, and he is gonna share the word of God with us next Sunday. And so it'll be the following week when we'll jump back into chapter four, uh, verses one through 13 next week, or the week after next. But today we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter three. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it's read? Before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Hebrews chapter three. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Amen. You may be seated. Tighten your grip on Jesus. You probably haven't heard of him, but he made news in China back at the end of the year 2017. 26-year-old Chinese internet star Wu Yangning. I'm sure I said that wrong, but we'll just go with it at that. Wu had started off his career as a movie actor, but the farthest he ever got in acting was to be a background actor, never having a a main role, even a small role really within a movie. And being a background actor in movies doesn't pay very well. And so he was in that and 
was trying to figure out how can I make more money, how can I do a little better financially and get the bills paid, when he came up with the idea of being a YouTuber. And so he decided that he could make more money videotaping himself doing stunts and letting people, if you get enough viewers on YouTube, then people will pay to have commercials next to your video, and those commercials generate revenue. So that's what he began doing at the beginning of the year 2017. For instance, he went to the top of a 70-story building, set up his camera there, and then on top of the building, he did a one-handed stand on top of the 70-story building. And put it on YouTube and people saw it and started watching. In fact, as they started watching his videos, he became known as the, the first, China's first roof topper. China's first roof topper. He went to another tall building in which he wa- went up on the ledge of the building and walked all the way around the perimeter of a 68-story building, walking its ledge while being videotaped. Put it on YouTube and people watched. His most famous feat was when he went to a walking bridge in China. And on the walking bridge, he went over the edge of the walking bridge and held onto the rail and started doing chin-ups, hanging 3,200 feet in the air. That was his most famous feat. In late November of 2017, he made his way to the top of another building, the Hunyan International Center building. He set up a camera opposite the way the building's shaped, opposite in a different window to videotape him. He went to the top of the building, lowered himself with, this is without any harnesses, this is without any other crew. He just does it on his own. Lowered himself over the side of the building at 68 stories high and began doing chin-ups. After the third chin-up, no one knows why, but the videotape records it. He stops and he's just hanging there. And you see him starting to try to pull himself up. And after about 10 seconds, his videotape records his fingers letting loose. And in late November of 2017, Wu fell to his death. He fell 40 stories when he hit a rooftop terrace over one of the apartments, and he died. To make matters worse, his girlfriend confirmed that their plans, her name was Jinjin, confirmed that their plans were for him to propose two days later. And I don't know if it's custom in China, but he was to give her parents a dowry, a wedding gift of $12,000, the amount of money he expected to make from that video. But that day, his fingers lost grip and he plunged to his death. That tragedy is repeated over and over again in the church. Not physically, not that we have people hang from a building, and our building's not that tall, but it's repeated spiritually when people who for sometimes days, sometimes years, sometimes decades have been walking with Christ and their fingers begin to slip and they let go of the Savior. In fact, we see in this passage two times it is mentioned You can look down in chapter three. If you look at verse six, it says, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And that gets repeated as you look down at verse 14 in this passage. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence 
we had in Christ. Today, God wants us to hear his word. And his word to us is this. Tighten your grip on Jesus. Tighten your grip on Jesus. Now today, to understand this passage, we're gonna walk through the, the basic outline of, and pattern of how the passage is laid together. And you'll notice, if your Bible's like mine, at the top of chapter three, uh, there's a heading there, and it may say something like this, Jesus greater than Moses, in your Bible. And you may remember, uh, as we've looked at Hebrews, we talked about Jesus being greater than the angels, and you see that back in chapter one, the headings there, Jesus is greater than the angels. And then last week, as we looked at the passage, we, we noticed something, though. Jesus, who is greater the, than the angels, descended lower than the angels, becoming a human what theologians call the incarnation, coming in flesh. The Son of God came in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus coming and being born in the manger of Bethlehem. And so Jesus came in the flesh. And so the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already shown us that Jesus is greater than angels. And we know he's writing to Jewish people who had become Christians and followers of Christ. And now these Jewish people are being tempted to turn their back on Christ and to go back to their Jewish ways and to assume that the law will provide their salvation. We don't know the exact setting why, but we've said that possibly there are Jews in Rome. And possibly it came at a time when Rome was evicting Christians out of there. Others think that it may refer to Christians in Jerusalem, that it was re those in the book of Acts when a great number of priests came to the faith and maybe they were being tempted to return to their priestly ways and assuming the sacrifices and the priestly system would provide their salvation. But whatever was the cause or the reason, they're being tempted. And so the author of Hebrews is writing and he starts off with something they're familiar with, with angels saying, Jesus is greater than angels. He's told them, but he descended and took on human flesh. And now he's gonna show them that, that Jesus is greater than maybe the person they held in the highest esteem. Now, I don't know for sure. Maybe the Jews hold David, King David in the Old Testament in higher esteem, but no doubt they held Moses in high esteem. And so, the author of Hebrews says not only was Jesus greater than the angels, but when he descended and became human, he's also greater than one of their great saints, that is Moses. And so we discover Jesus is greater than Moses. Now Moses was a great man. You ever think about Moses' pedigree and all that I mean, all that he does and accomplishes, I mean, from his birth and how he's, he's saved by his mom, putting him in a basket and to, with his sister to send him down into the waters there in the, in the Egyptian Nile River, and he lands up being, instead of being slaughtered with the rest of the Jewish male babies at that time, he's taken into Pharaoh's house and raised within Pharaoh's house. You hear about him growing up and eventually he flees from Egypt because he's killed a man. But then uh, who gets a burning bush for God to show up as a burning bush? I mean, the most that most of you get and the most that I'll get is you have to listen to me and hope that God says something through me on a Sunday morning. But Moses gets a burning bush talking to him. And so he has a burning bush. He's sent to lead back to Egypt to God says to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And not only does he tell Pharaoh, let my people go, but then he has all the plagues showing that the God of Israel is the one true God greater than anything that the Egyptians believe in. 
And so we have 10 plagues. And then he leads them out. And it's not just enough to jump in a car and to drive out of Egypt. No, they get stuck at the Red Sea. And God says, well, I'll just part the Red Sea and let my people go through and drown the Egyptians when they go into it. And you think, man, Moses, he's quite a man. Sure, there's Abraham. Sure, there's David. And there's also Moses. And you think, when they got through the Red Sea, the story's not done. In fact, I think this is one of the reasons why the author of Hebrews chooses Moses is because then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God gives him the law. And what has Jesus done? He came to fulfill the law and he became the sacrifice so that the sacrifices of the law were no longer needed. And so what better person to highlight that Jesus is greater than Moses, the one who gave them the law. And you just think about all of the different things. You think about his special relationship to God. In Numbers chapter 12, it says, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, God says, I reveal to myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Wow. Who can have that said about them? But Moses can. He's a man of great character. Numbers 12, 13 says, now Moses was a very humble man, the more, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. In fact, Moses was held in such high regard. And there was a passage taken as a prophecy, Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, a prophet like Moses from among your own brothers. And it was assumed by the Jewish people that one day God would send one like Moses, a prophet like Moses. And if that wasn't enough, even when Moses dies, and obviously Moses wasn't perfect, we know that in scripture, but even when he dies, it says that the Lord buried him, and no one to this day knows where God buried him. He was buried by the hand of God. Moses is quite a man, and yet we discover Jesus is greater than Moses, but it's not to put Moses down. Because what the author of Hebrews really wants you to understand about Moses is this, is that ultimately Moses was faithful. Moses was faithful. So the first thing to know is Moses was a faithful servant. Moses was a faithful servant. You notice in verse two, if you look there, says, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. And if you go down to verse five, it says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. And so it's not to put Moses down. He's setting us up to say, you have high esteem for Moses. You look up to Moses and for good reason. And what do you need to know about Moses? Moses was faithful to God. And then the author of Hebrews says, now let's draw a comparison and a contrast now with Jesus. And what we discover about Jesus, if Moses was a faithful servant, what we discover about Jesus is that Jesus is a faithful son. And that's the second point. Secondly, Jesus is the faithful son. If you look at verse two, it says, he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So the first person it talks about there in that verse, he was, Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed them. Jesus was faithful. And verse six goes on to say, but Christ is, you see the next word? Faithful, 
Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Now, Jesus is greater than Moses. In fact, there's quite a contrast drawn between the two. If you look at verses five and six, verse five is a contrast with verse six. Verse five showing us Moses, verse six showing us Jesus Christ. You'll notice if you were to create a little chart, a chart with the, you know, the details about Moses and the details about Jesus, verse five says Moses was faithful. Notice verse six starts off, but Christ is faithful. They're both faithful. Now the NIV has chosen, you can decide whether this is meaningful or not, uh, the NIV has chosen to say Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful. Uh, The challenge there is in Greek, the verb is not written, it's just understood, whether you should use a a past tense or or present tense. But uh, the NIV has taken Jesus is faithful because Moses saved them out of Egypt, but Jesus is saving us and will save us for all eternity. And so Moses was faithful, Christ is faithful. Notice it goes on in verse five, as a, Moses, if you went down in the column and created a chart, said as a servant. Notice though in verse six, Christ is faithful as a, as a son. Moses is only a servant of God, but Jesus is the eternal son of God. And so, You see the difference between the two. And then it goes on from there. Where was Moses a servant? In all God's house. But notice in verse six when it talks about son, Christ is a faithful as a son, not in God's house, over God's house. In other words, Moses, God's house is another way of talking about the people of God. What in the New Testament we call the church. And so what he says is Moses, he was a faithful servant, but it was in the house. He's, in other words, he's just part of the people of God. He's one of our brothers and sisters, but Jesus is over the house. He's the son of God who has made, he's made us possible. Moses just belonged to the people of God. Jesus made the people of God exist. He built the house, as is said later in the passage. And so then it wraps up. Moses, verse five, testifying to what would be said in the future. Now it doesn't tell us what, what testimony it's referring to there. And scholars take different views on that. Some think that that's a reference to the law and that, that Moses talked about the law, Jesus fulfilled the law. Some think that it's a reference to the priesthood because in Hebrews, there's this high emphasis on Jesus, our high priest, who's made purification for our sins. We've talked about that over the last few weeks, and it will be expounded more into the future as we work our way through the book. But some think it's a reference to the priesthood because Moses was the one who gave the regulations through the law about the priest. And so ultimately, that would find its fulfillment in Christ. The thing to notice is this, that Moses, it says, was a faithful servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. In other words, Moses was the promise. The implication, and Hebrews doesn't spell this out, but the implication is Jesus is the fulfillment. And so we see that Jesus in every way is greater than Moses. Although you'll notice in verse six, the author decides instead of bringing out that implication that Jesus is the fulfillment, he goes to application. And it says, we are his house, 
if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. But the author doesn't want to put Moses down. Oh, no. He starts with Moses because he knows people hold Moses in high esteem and high regard. And so the author of Hebrews is coming and saying, you don't need to put Moses down. You need to understand, Moses is great. Moses is faithful. What I want you to... What, what he wants us to understand is this, Jesus is greater and Jesus is faithful. So I don't know if you're seeing a pattern here. Moses was what? He was very good, faithful. And Jesus was what? Faithful. And we see that term repeated throughout there. So Moses is faithful, Jesus is faithful. Can you catch any idea of where this may be going for us? Except there's going to be a pause before he gets to us because the author of Hebrews wants to show what God's people have done in the past. And so he pauses and he brings in a quote from Psalm 95, which we read earlier in the service. And in this psalm, we see a different story. But thirdly, and this is our third point, the followers of Moses were an unfaithful generation. Do you see that? Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful, but were, were the people that he led out of, out of Egypt through the wilderness, and remember they sent the spies into the land, did they trust God to conquer the land? They didn't. And so God was upset and he took them back, said you're gonna wander, this whole generation's gonna pass away, and I'll raise up a new generation and lead them in except for, um, for Joshua and Caleb who trusted me. And so God says, they were unfaithful. He said, God's people who had seen the plagues on Egypt, God's people who had gone through the Red Sea, God's people who had gone on Mount Sinai and seen the law given and were led by a, a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night, God's people, when they faced the scary giants and they thought themselves just grasshoppers in the presence of the people who lived in the land of Canaan, when they saw the that scenario, they lost confidence in God. They were unfaithful. Now, I would like to highlight a technical thing. Our Bibles, at least my NIV version, does not highlight it well. But I think it's interesting to note, because we said that Moses was what? Faithful. And we said that Jesus was what? faithful. So if you'll indulge me for a second, you'll see in verse 19, you'll notice that there's the psalm quote, and then um, the author of Hebrews explains who these people are that were unfaithful in verses 16 to 19. He comes back to that after challenging God's people to be faithful. In verses 16 to 19, he says, we, who were they who, who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? In verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. That last word there, indulge me. I don't know what your translation of the Bible has, and there's so many good translations out there. Um, but in, in the NIV version that I have, the last word of that verse is the word unbelief. Now, I am no Greek scholar, um, but I have a few tools that were given to me in seminary. And so I can at least look up the word. And what's astounding to me about that word there is it is, that word unbelief is the same word as the word faithful, 
with a negative on the front. You say, what do you mean? Uh, even in Greek, they put the letter A on the front. We do that in English. Sometimes you put the letter A on the front and it means it, it makes the word a negative. So if you have the word moral, you know, if a person is moral, they, that means, you know, they, they live a, a right, a good life, right? So if you were to come up to say, if you were to come up and say, I, my wife is a moral person, so she lives a, a right and a good life. If you were to say, Pastor John is an amoral person, if you put the letter A on the front of it, now all of a sudden that, that would mean I'm a person lacking morals, right? If I am amoral. So what's astounding to me here, and we miss it in this translation, is the emphasis on faithfulness. Because Moses is said to be faithful, Jesus is said to be faithful, and that very last word when talking about Israel is the same word faithful with the letter A on the front. It could have been translated, I wish the NIV had translated it this way, it could have been translated faithless. They wrote unbelief. We use the word belief and faith interchangeably a lot of times, and so the NIV did that as well. Um, but it means Israel was unfaithful. They were faithless in God. And they doubted God who could have given them the victory. And so we see Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful, Israel was unfaithful. And the message for the people hearing today, fourthly, therefore, we the followers of Jesus must be faithful today. You pick up verse 12, it says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving, there's that word, by the way. By the way, that's the same word there. It's really, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unfaithful heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And so we, the followers of Jesus, must be faithful today. And you'll notice he actually uses a different analogy now. He changes gears a little bit in this passage and talks about the fact that if we need to be faithful because the temptation is to have a hard heart. You can have a hard heart. Did you know you can physically have a hard heart? I looked it up online. I thought I had heard about this, so I went online and looked it up, and sure enough, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the hardening of the human heart. According to WebMD, it is associated with the thickening of the heart muscle, most commonly at the septum between the ventricles below the aortic valve. This leads to the stiffening of the walls of the heart and abnormal aortic and mitral heart valve function, both of which may impede normal blood flow out of the heart. You may have a hardened heart in your chest. God says it can happen as a Christian. You can have a hardened heart towards God. And you'll see it, it's, it's emphasized in three phrases in these verses. The first is this, beware of a sinful, unbelieving heart. You could have a sinful, unbelieving heart, a heart that refuses to believe God and therefore to obey him. He goes on to say not only a sinful, unbelieving heart, but a heart that turns away from the living God. It's interesting, that little phrase there is where we get the word apostasy from. The early church struggled with this because of the persecution on believers. 
There was many times where there were people who attended church or were part of church and confessed faith in Christ. They had been baptized and persecution came and their life was on the line. And what was a believer gonna do? And some, they gave up their lives to follow Jesus Christ, but there were others who denied Christ and they bowed the knee, whether that was to the emperor or to whatever the cause was at that time. In the New Testament, church was often the emperor and to the Roman Empire and they'd bow the knee to the emperor and they'd worship the emperor and confess him to be a god as well or they'd worship the Roman gods and thus save their lives. And so the word used there was they apostatized. And so they committed apostasy. And the church struggled with that. What do we do with these believers, especially when some of them came back later and said, I want to repent and rejoin the church. And that was a struggle. And that little word apostasy comes right from this phrase here. It is the Greek word behind this, turning away from the living God. You can have a heart, it says, that is sinful and unbelieving. You can have a heart that turns away from the living God. And then finally, as you work down in the phrase here, you notice that you should be aware of a heart that is hardened by sin's deceitfulness, which is at the end of verse 13. You can have a hard heart. And the scary thing is this. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people sitting in church. He started it off. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. The warning comes that we can have a hard heart And so I think the challenge is you discover this. Moses is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Israel, even after all they saw, was unfaithful. And he says, so today, you brothers and sisters in Christ, you must be faithful. You must guard against the hardening of your heart. And so the challenge I would say to us today is this. We must tighten our grip on Jesus. As I said in verse six, it says, we are his house if indeed we hold firmly our confidence in the hope of which we have. Verse 14 repeats it. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We have to hold firmly We have to tighten our grip on Jesus. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you were trying to hold on tight to something? Where you were trying to to keep your grip on something? Whether that was so that you didn't lose it and it slip away or whether that was so uh, so that you didn't fall and you kept your grip? I thought I would share with you a time in my life, just a fun moment, when uh, I was trying to keep my grip. Now, you'll have to bear with technology. This goes back almost 15 years, back when um, video and digital cameras were up to the three megapixel level. And we wonder how we ever got to where we are today with nice, clear pictures. But back then, I, years ago, I was invited to take a, a group of youth to 3DYC. Some of you may remember that, Three District Youth Convention, which was a, a, a gathering of the missionary churches from Michigan and Ohio and North Central here in Northern Indiana. And while we were there, they had different um, just activities to do to pass the time in your free time. And one of them was was what you would call bowl riding. It wasn't a real bowl, but it was an electronic bowl. And the goal is to sit on the bowl and to hold tight and to, and to stay on as long as you can. There's a little timer that, that keeps, 
keeps it on there. So we were up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, was, I had taken the youth group up there, and we're at the Amway Grand Hotel, which is a nicer hotel than any teenager should be allowed to stay in when there's like 1,200 of them. I end up, and here is a, a short clip of me getting on a bowl trying to hold on tight. So we'll see if we can get this. It looks like slow motion, but when you're the one on it, it's a whole different ball game. You have to do it one-handed. That's just protocol. Off we go. Do you ever think about that? You watch the video, you laugh, but you realize that's the spiritual life. Do you realize the world wants to spin you and the devil wants to shake you? And this passage comes to us and twice it tells you this, to hold on. And so we God's people should realize this. We shouldn't just say, oh, I'm holding on, I'm okay. We should tighten our grip on Jesus Because there's an interesting thing about the bull ride. The longer you go on it, the faster it spins and the quicker it changes direction. Oh, it's easy at first, you just hold on, it's kind of a nice little ride. And the next thing you know, it just keeps picking up and picking up. And sometimes life is that way, isn't it? Sometimes the circumstances of life, the pressures of life, just the schedule of life come such that we can lose our grip on Jesus Christ. And God comes to us today and he says this, tighten your grip on Jesus. Tighten your grip on him. Now you may wonder, how do we do that? Scholar George Guthrie writes in his commentary some suggestions based on this passage. So I'll just pass these along. You might wonder, what are some ideas, pastor, how to tighten my grip on Jesus? Uh, One idea is this. I didn't put these on the screen, I apologize for that. But um, you can tighten your grip on Jesus by gaining a better understanding of him. And like it or not, one way to do that is to read. Uh, Reading is a blessing, it's a way we learn and grow. And the first place to start is if you have never read the Gospels, then you start there. If you wanna know who Jesus is, you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, And I, can't help but think there's probably people here who've never read all the way through the Gospels. You don't know who Jesus is. And I would encourage you, open up your Bibles. Just like um, I was at General Conference just over a week ago, and one of the Bible professors said that um, he was astounded when one of the students came to Bethel, had to take a Bible class at Bethel, and because they're required to, and he came from one of our missionary churches, and he came up to the professor after class one day, he said, this is amazing. He said, I can't believe it. He said, did you know, I just learned this, there are two testaments in the Bible. There is an Old Testament and a New Testament in the Bible. And the professor's like, I thought everybody knew that. So I don't assume everybody's read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and maybe you haven't read them for a while. Read the Gospels. Now you can read other books as well. Other Christians can sharpen your mind. If you want a suggestion, maybe read... um, Philip Yancey's, The Jesus I Never Knew. But you can grow in your understanding of Jesus. Another way to tighten your grip is 
You tighten it by walking closer with Jesus. Christians down through the centuries have read their Bibles and engaged in prayer and made it a regular daily habit. And I want to encourage you, find a Bible reading plan and read your Bible and engage in prayer. Keep a little journal if you want, a little paper of prayer request that you put before God. But spend time with the Savior. You'll never tighten your grip with the Savior if you don't spend time. That's true in just about every area of life. If you want to tighten your grip and build your relationship, it takes time. Tighten your grip on Jesus by choosing obedience to him. If you know you're doing something that is contrary to God's will, then you have to stop. You're never gonna get any closer to the Savior if you're walking in disobedience and in sin. Sin has to stop. And then finally, tighten your grip on Jesus by connecting regularly with his family. It's interesting. In the book of Hebrews, there is an emphasis that you cannot live the Christian life successfully apart from God's people. You have to connect with them and rely on them. In fact, George Guthrie relates a story about Houdini. How many of you have heard of Houdini, the, the, you know, the historical escape artist? And it was said that back in the early 1900s, there was a challenge given to Houdini. He had already grown famous and people knew of his exploits of being able to escape. And so the Illustrator Mirror of London, I don't know if that's a magazine, I'm not, I'm not sure, but the Illustrator Mirror of London put a challenge to Houdini. They said, we have a set, we have a new type of handcuff. We've designed it just for you. This handcuff, each handcuff has six locks in it and nine tumblers. He said, would you accept the challenge that we will lock you up in these handcuffs? And I don't know if there's just one set on his wrist. I don't know if they had his wrist and his arms and his legs. I'm not sure how many sets there were. They said, but we're going to lock you up and see if you can get free. They asked Houdini, will you accept the challenge? He said, I will. He said, I'm the great, he's the greatest escape artist who's ever lived. He said, I'll do it. And so they set a date, and sure enough, they gathered there in London. Over, over a thousands of people gathered in the Hippodrome of London to watch Houdini escape. And so Houdini said, I need a box to work in. He said, oh, I need a place that I can be concealed to do my work and to get out of the handcuffs. And sure enough, they brought him up on the platform. They had a box for him to get in. They let him up there. They put the handcuffs on him. They put him over to the box. He went down in it, and they covered the box. And the crowd waited and watched. And they sat there, and they sat there. After 20 minutes, all of a sudden, the box top came up, and Houdini popped out, and the crowd started to share, Woo! And they looked at him, and he was still in handcuffs. And he looked at the people and they quieted down. They're like, oh my goodness. They're like, he didn't get out. And he smiled at the crowd and he said, I need more light. It's too dark in there. And so, they, so they, they, they took the lid off and left the lid off and he could still hide down in the box. And they went back down and in. And so he's down in the box and he's working away and the people are sitting there waiting. About 15 minutes later, all of a sudden he comes back up and the crowd goes, woo! And they look and he's still in handcuffs. It's like, sorry guys. He said, I just needed to stretch. It's kind of cramped in the box. He said, I got more work to do. And he went down into the box. And so the crowd sat there and they watched. And as he's in the box, after about 10 minutes, he comes back up. And this time, he has a knife in his mouth. And he's pulled the knife out. And, and he starts taking it and he, he gets it in his teeth and he takes it and he starts slashing his shirt and cutting it. And he said, it's too hot to work in there. He said, if you want to be successful, I got to cool down. And so he's stripping his shirt off and the crowd starts clapping and yelling and screaming for him as his shirt comes off. And so he then works his way down into the box and the crowd watches and they wait. 
And about 10 minutes later, all of a sudden, Houdini comes up and he's holding the handcuffs and he's free and the crowd goes wild. Later that day, different magazines wanted to interview him in newspapers about the exploit and one of the interviewers came up to him and said, why were you in the box? He said, why did you come up every single time? You could have stayed in that box and worked your way out of it. He said, I came out of that box. He said, it wasn't to show off. He said, it wasn't to necessarily, because I had to have more light or I had to flex. I could have done it and stayed in there. He said, but I needed to hear the roar of the crowd to persist and to finish my job. He said, otherwise I would have given up. And Hebrews will tell us, the author will tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that to live the Christian life, we need the encouragement of God's people. We cannot live it successfully alone. And so if you want to tighten your grip on Jesus, you need to share the Christian life with others. And so I'm going to throw an idea out there. I'm going to throw something out there that we as a staff aren't sure we know how to make happen, but we know we need to make it happen for, for several people in our church. Because we know there are several people in our church who you need to be connected to other Christians. You need to have people who pray for you and study the word of God with you. And you haven't been able to find a way to make that happen. And so we have been working and behind the scenes trying to make small groups where people can be together at least twice a month, more in a home setting so you have that fellowship and relationship. And if you are interested in being a part of a group of other Christians who pray together and study scripture together and, just in, and enjoy just being together and the fellowship of being together, if you would like that in your own life, I would encourage you just to write your name down and put it on a connection sheet and say, I would love to be in a small home group and to be a part of that. And uh, we're trying to get some going. We have some in the works for this fall and we'd like to get more going. But we don't know who wants to be in them and who'd like to be a part of them, maybe even help with them. And so if that's of interest to you, if you'd, just, if you'd come onto our radar, we would like to partner with you and to help make that a possibility in your life. Maybe you already have that and if you do, praise the Lord. Um, continue to be a part of that. But that's another way to tighten your grip on Jesus. I sent a text out last night. I didn't have one of these, but uh, I suspect some of you have seen these before. Little, uh, little hand grips. And um, I remember as a kid, I don't, I, they were at my grandma's house, and somehow they made it from my grandma's house to my house. She had these, and she had another thing with springs in the middle. They could pull apart like that. And when I, was, when I was reading this passage, and it said, hold on, it said, hold on, I kept thinking, you know what? We somehow have to have a spiritual exercise machine because the world, like a mechanical bull, wants to throw us for a loop and wants to see us hit the ground and hit the dirt. But God comes to us today and he says this, you need to tighten your grip on Jesus. Wherever it's at right now, my challenge in my own life and to you today is this, wherever it's at today, could you take one step closer? Could you do one thing to tighten it and to make yourself a little bit stronger than you were when you walked in this service, by the help of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, can you tighten your grip on Jesus? Will you bow your heads with me?
Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this passage and the challenge that it is to us to look at the faithfulness of Moses, to look at the faithfulness of Jesus, to look at the faithlessness of Israel and to realize that the challenge lies to us to be faithful, to tighten our grip on Jesus. Lord, I pray in my own life that you would give me a closer walk and a deeper love. I pray for that closer devotional time. Lord, I pray for a stronger group of brothers and sisters to share the Christian life with, to warn, to guide, to encourage. And Lord, in my life and in my brothers and sisters gathered here, may we tighten our grip on you. May you help it to be so, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Will you stand up as we sing?